Yeah, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is the beginning of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to actually do this podcast is because I feel like a lot of people that actually do podcasts, they don't really have a voice or know exactly what they want to do with it. They just pretty much leave it up to whomever the guest is. And they figure, since I have a following, that people are going to listen just based on that. But if you don't actually have a voice or a direction or any conviction, then what's the point of doing the podcast in the first place? I don't, I don't understand that. And so um, when I started this off, I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And if you're actually interested in hearing what I have to say or the content, I hate that fucking word, uh, that I have, then that's what I want from listeners or the audience or whomever. Uh, as opposed to, I watch a lot of YouTube and I see all these YouTube creators and they're like, what do you want me to do? What would you like for me to do? And they're just like, I guess since that revenue pays for everything or pretty much keeps them alive, that they, they're they bound or they have to do what the audience wants. But that's not really why I got into this. I got into this to actually do a bunch of things that I can't do on Twitter where you have 140, 280 characters at your disposal and you can't, you still can't have real dialogue with people or conversations. That's just stupid. So Dart Against Humanity is just going to be me talking about a wide array, a wide array of things that actually, you know, interest me and hopefully that gauges your interest. Anyway, uh, this podcast was actually supposed to be called something different. It's supposed to be about um, music discovery and how different generations relate to music and me talking about music. It was actually supposed to be called uh, Flash Drives and Ox Chords. Uh, it was supposed to come out, what, 2016? But the issues behind that were the people I was doing it with and who originally wanted to release it, uh, they wanted to release it on a Tuesday. And in Boston, the two biggest things are two radio shows that we have, LFOD, the Free or Die Radio, and Overdog Radio. And they're both really important to the scene. Uh, the scene actually exists. Uh, forget about what uh, Joyner Lucas says. Um, so I was looking at the slot, the time slot for the podcast that they had. And it was going to be between those two shows. And I... I visit either one of those two shows. So I was really disappointed with that. And I was like, well, no, I can't do the show on that date or I can't do it at that time slot. And then we started having um, disagreements on if the podcast is actually going to be a podcast or it's going to be considered something called a show. And I was really disappointed that we weren't on the same you know, wavelength that we we weren't on the same page in that regard. So I decided to just scrap it entirely and do something different. And here we are today. So I have a whole list of topics that I was going to address with the former podcast, which I'm going to just uh, throw out here later. But um, basically, I get a lot of questions, one of them being, where's my book? So let me just address that right now. Where's my book? Here's the problem. I'm a 42 going on 43 year old journalist that really pretty much deals with hip hop culture and uh, rap and minutia of that nature, like the history, you know, 
things that people really don't talk about in this space. You know, I'd much rather write about things that happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years ago that directly impact where we are today in terms of music or the music that's happening now that's actually keeping these things alive as opposed to whatever's hot because I feel like the industry dictates what's hot and the people in the industry right now don't know what the hell they're doing and it's extremely disappointing and it doesn't engage my it doesn't it doesn't interest me I'm not engaged by it I don't care I think there are a lot of people my age forcing it because that's where their checks come from and you can see it they're like they're trying to be down with the kids and I'm glad being I'm good being an old head I'm good actually having you know standards you know I'm fine with that so that being the case the I'm in a space where I don't want to because you're I'm a freelancer technically I don't want to pitch things that I know aren't going to be received well or I know I'm going to have to sell you on it I've been writing for over 12 years I've built my I've built my uh my stature, you know, I, I've built my space, I've carved my own niche. You know what you're getting with me. I don't like the idea that I have to sell you on something like it's a good idea. I'm not like a 25-year-old writer that I need help from an editor to figure out which direction I want to go with the piece. I already know what the hell I want to do. So that being the case, I don't need somebody to help me figure it out. All I want is for somebody to say yes and pay me the rate that I deserve. If it needs editing, it needs editing. But post it and pay me. That's all I care about. I don't want to have to pitch. You know who I am. You know what I do. Run it and pay me. So the ideal situation that I want is I want a column or I want um, something there. I'm guaranteed to put out something either once a week uh, twice a month, what have you. And I get paid for it. I have a rate and I get paid for it. So I know there's a check coming every month. And also the other issue that um, I have to deal with is being um, a writer who's worked for hire, who's a journalist, is the check and when it's coming. Unlike other people that actually have good standings with people where they can write 10 pieces all over the place and get multiple checks coming from everywhere. I don't get that kind of thing. So I need to have a situation where whoever I'm writing for is paying me. And so I know I'm guaranteed I'm getting money from that. And also you have to realize that the money that I make from that isn't a living wage. I have to do other things outside of that. So people always ask me, how come you haven't written here? How come you haven't written here? Well, because even the money that I would make from when I have a regular gig with somebody has to be subs- I have to has to be added to the work that I do outside. I have to hustle for. And in this space it's weird because it's not like um you just have to kill your own food. You know, you you eat what you kill. I have to pretty much cre- create the animals, grow the grass, you know, I got to uh, cultivate the land, you know, I got to irrigate the land. 
I have to create my own market so somebody would pay me, which is way more work. It's a big pain in the ass, especially in this journalism field. And that's just what happens when you're 43. I'm 42, but I'm going to be 43, so I just say I'm 43. Um, And in this space writing, nobody's really super excited to run a a 35th anniversary piece about something that happened in 1983 or a 30th anniversary piece about an album that came out in 1988 because they don't think that the people who care about that are going to go to these sites. So the ad revenue isn't going to add up for them. So the rate doesn't make sense. And you have to realize that the rate already is a joke because whatever I get for that rate, I'm not getting paid that until next month. So a lot of journalists come out here and they're like, I wrote this piece for this site. Congratulate us when you get paid for it. You know, like talk about it when you get paid for it. I finally got paid for that for that piece that I ran. And when when, when you work uh, like me, where you do a lot of consulting and writing on the side for other people, I really rely on these people to pay me on time, whether it's PayPal or whatever pays, whatever it is, if they do it by check or if they just give me cash. It's super important that they pay me on time because respect don't pay the bills, you know. Comcast doesn't care about how much respect I have in the game. Um, nobody does. You know, Netflix doesn't care. You know, when I write that rent check, they do not care how popular I am or, or what rapper or what DJ knows me. You know, they don't care. I have to live. I have to eat. And so where's my book? Writing, I have to be able, when i writing, what I do, I pretty much write because I have to be able to write to be able to afford to write, if that makes any sense. Um, if I can't afford to write, then I'll do something else. And the thing about writing a book is that's more labor than just all the research and the, the man hours and actually writing and posting something. And then you got to promote it after you post it. So uh, I wrote a lot of pieces on Medium, and I was wondering how come my pieces weren't really gaining traction like other people's were. So I did research. This is years ago. It's like 2013, 2014. And I discovered that the people that wrote on Medium that had huge responses to their pieces, that they pretty much were cheating. They were part of different communities online, whether it be Dig, um, Quora, or just you name it, Pinterest, what have you. And what happened was anytime they posted a piece on Medium, what they would do is they would have all their cronies on all the other sites on Dig. Everybody would upvote their piece as soon as it came on so it would reach the page. Uh, If it was on another site, they would do the same thing and do the same thing. So it would get all these references and get all these views and all their people would instantly like it. So next thing you know, it's on the front page of Medium. And then they would promote it nonstop across every platform you could imagine. And one guy explained, he says, for every hour you spend writing, you have to spend three to five hours promoting the piece you just wrote. Now, for me, somebody who exhaustively researches every piece, I write a piece, I post a piece, I'm writing the next one. Sometimes I'm writing two, three things at once. So the idea behind me having to get up here and promote something that I just wrote when I'm already writing something else is ridiculous. So ultimately, I just didn't care. But with writing a book, 
I have to dedicate all this time to writing one piece. One piece. And who's paying me for this? It's hard enough to get paid for the stuff I do write. So is somebody paying me a fee so I can afford to spend all my time on this one project? And who the hell is going to pay me for a book when some of the best pieces I wrote on Medium have never even got enough of a look for me to get paid for them, you know? So this is a conversation I've had with a whole bunch of journalists, a whole bunch of writers. And finally, um, Brian Coleman, I ran into him recently at the Harvard uh, Hip Hop Archive, and he just pretty much laid it out for me. And he was like, look, you can do this, 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 and this, and you could just write a piece or just write a mini book or do whatever. You don't have to commit yourself to writing the book book. And it doesn't have to cost you anything. And you can do it in this amount of time and you can do all your side stuff. And all the money that comes will be yours, you know? And I was just like, okay. So I don't really have that excuse anymore. So for everybody asking, where's the book? You know, and then there are a lot of other people that just have the idea that I'm going to do like a hardcover book with a big publisher. They don't care about me. You know, they really do not care. Somebody who's a big pub, who's a big writer who actually gets their books published or something like that would have to like pretty much co-sign me or something like that. And even then, I've seen so many instances where named writers who had great books and are all on TV and stuff. The It just doesn't sell too well. You know, I'll never forget uh, being told that uh, Juno Diaz's book Drowned barely moved units by Juno Diaz. And I just looked at him like, what? Like that book was everywhere. He was on TV, he was in every literary journal you could imagine, major publications, and made a name for him. And I think it sold, what, 10,000 copies? That's incredible. That's ridiculous. And then I knew other people that made books and they were everywhere and their books didn't sell. Like, um, I don't know how much Bling sold. I remember there's a woman named Shannon Boudram and she did a sex book and she was on every network imaginable. She was a guest star on so many different TV shows and she was everywhere and her book didn't sell. And I was like, wow, so this this is a lot, you know, to turn me off of the idea of trying to make a book proposal. But, you know, Brian's like, you don't have to make a book proposal, just write the book. You know, people will buy it. If you build it, they will come. So there's that. Where's my book? So, uh. I'm going to go down this list of stuff that I made for the um, topics for the original podcast. And I don't know if I'm actually going to go through any of these, but whatever. Fuck. Um, The first thing is why writing about hip hop and rap without extensive knowledge of the history or the culture is harmful. Uh, Let me explain that one. So the problem is that we have a lot of young writers who didn't experience errors for themselves commenting on them. And what happens is they spread um, misinformation, they spread uh, inaccuracies, Uh, a lot of writing is ahistorical, it's lacking necessary context to really uh, connect it with this generation, and it's very harmful because there are a lot of people that just want to instantly hate on something or denounce something without actually making any effort to understand it and for the same by the same token there are a lot of people that are older that just want to hate something 
without realizing that it actually has ties to what they do now or ties to what they did in the past. Like there's a parallel. It's analogous. And that's super disappointing. And you could be bringing people together as opposed to just like tearing them apart. And that kind of is disappointing to me because it could be a teaching moment and it could communication is so key in this space right now and it's sorely lacking and there are a lot of people commenting about things that don't really understand it and worse off there are a lot of people that are talking heads and supposedly trusted in this field and they don't know what they're talking about either um i think the reason i wrote this is because i was really just i was really uh just sick of uh some of the pieces and YouTube videos that were going up by some um of the some of my contemporaries uh, particularly uh the company man Justin Hunt he would do a series of YouTube videos about subjects and he would just be really wrong and there would be people in the comment sections or online uh co-signing what he said or agreeing with him and I'm like you don't know what you're talking about either so I would break down everything that he did or said that was wrong or erroneous or misleading and he would like try to pretend like what I was saying didn't have any merit but it didn't really matter because he already had his following he already had his people he already had his stands who were like defending anything he did and said and it's just disappointing because ultimately they were wrong and they're still wrong but what can I do about it when you're pushed to the margins in a space or a field there's only so much you could do and we're about 20 minutes almost into this and I'm pretty sure anybody who's listening could tell that I'm somebody who actually has a clear idea and a clear voice about what they do and don't like about this space and what I wish I could do to change it. But I can sit here and I can complain about it or I, which would make no sense because this isn't new. I've written about what was going on in the space and how things are at my advanced age as being a writer. And I pretty much quit journalism several times and I got pulled right back into it several times and I I really want to leave on my own terms with something that actually will pay me you know but good luck on having that happen in a timely fashion anyways um what else do I have here I have the importance of providing context in music journalism I could go on and on and on about that all day um fighting revisionist rap history and yeah, I talk about that on Twitter all the time. Um, why I make sure to differentiate rap from hip-hop culture and what's the difference? Okay. I actually explained this on Twitter in 280 characters, but it bears repeating. Hip-hop culture is a global phenomenon that exists regardless of if the rap industry, which is what a lot of people conflate it for, exists or not. A zombie apocalypse could break out. 
or the entire world economy could collapse. The rap industry would be doomed. It would be over. It'd be finished. But hip-hop culture would still be alive. There'd still be DJs. There'd still be B-boys. People would still write graph. And people would still freestyle. They would still rhyme. People would probably still rhyme in ciphers. They'd probably still record raps. They'd probably still share them with each other. Using whatever method they can. If the internet still exists. Regardless of if there's any way to buy or sell the music. Hip-hop culture would not die. The things that hip-hop culture is affected. It would continue to affect. Whether it's the way people wear clothing whether it's the way people interact with anything uh hip-hop kind of birth remix culture it's seeped into every realm of society almost the way we speak a shout out you know um there's so many things that hip-hop culture has affected forever and always going forward that if the rap industry didn't exist they would still happen And I think people have completely screwed up everything with thinking that everything that's a derivative of or a byproduct of what hip-hop culture is or has affected is the whole of hip-hop culture. That's a fallacy. That's wrong. And it's really hard to try to break people out of that habit of thinking that way, especially younger people. Because they don't know any different. They never really experienced hip-hop. They've been told what something was hip-hop when it actually wasn't. And they bought it. But they don't know the difference. And it's not their fault. You can't control when you were born. Um, there's this thing I have written here. Well, this is actually back when it was supposed to be about um music discovery. And I think I'll do something about that later. Because... I, it's tough. Um, but there's a question here: Why don't hits matter anymore? And I think I know exactly what I meant when I wrote this because this is from what 2016. But the difference is now that you can have a hit, and I'm using air quotes because really, um, you can have a hit now, and only certain people have heard it, and everybody hasn't, and that's because the world's different now. When I was a kid, if you had a hit song, you were going to be on the the late night talk show, whether it be Johnny Carson, whether it be Dave Letterman, you know, and that would everyone would be there. You know, you're going to be on solid gold. You're going to be on. um, Soul Train, you'll be on American Bandstand shows everybody tuned into everybody's watching you only have five to eight channels that come in clear and you only have a a set amount of network you know that air stuff at prime time so everybody's glued in it's like back in the days with the ed sullivan show you put the beatles on ed sullivan show that was the big thing uh back in the days if you got on arsenio hall that was huge because everybody's watching arsenio or if you were a comedian and you got on, again, you got on um, Johnny Carson or you got on Dave Letterman. Or if you did the Dick Cavett show, you know, if you were on Donahue, 
Later on, if you did the Ricky Lake show, if you performed on Jenny Jones, this is a time when everybody tuned in or during the time when um, people had uh, VCRs and can program them. This is when everybody would watch or be what everybody was talking about the next day at school. You know, uh, and that was during the cable era, too. So those times are different now. So Crystal Gale singing Don't It Make Your Brown Eyes Blue being on every single show, every variety show. That meant that like her hit, everybody heard it. Like I used I heard Dolly Parton's Jolene. Why? It was inescapable, you know. The Grand Ole Opry came on TV. uh, Hee Haw came on. We watched that because there were only so many channels. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I used to watch hockey because it came on WSBK TV 38 at night. And if the Celtics weren't playing and the Red Sox weren't playing, there was a hockey game on. It comes in clear. It's on UHF. We're watching hockey. And it's the same way with Channel 2. Uh, Channel 2 was PBS. So in Boston, Channel 2 and P- Channel two and 44 PBS. So I watched a lot of Doctor Who growing up. A lot of um, Monty Python, Flying Circus, Red Dwarf, Faulty Towers. I watched a lot of these shows because it came on Channel 2 and Channel 44 and it came in clear. And by that same token, you know, this is why... A hit was different because if you had a hit, you were on national television, you were all over the radio, and we everyone heard it. So it meant more. Nowadays, you can have a hit and only a certain amount of people heard you. And now people argue that wait, if you stream, if you have, a, if you're streaming or you're on SoundCloud, that means that. That's a whole lot of people to hear you, but it's not the same as it was back in the day because it's a specialized audience of people having headphones or people listening to it on their laptops or people listening to it on their handheld device versus having a captive audience of everyone, grandmothers, parents, children, everyone. Think about that. Think about. Michael Jackson, Pretty Young Thing. Who didn't know that song? Who didn't know Whitney Houston's How Will I Know? Who didn't know Sade's Sweetest Taboo? Who didn't know uh, Tina Turner's You Better Be Good To Me? Everybody heard that song. The Police. Everybody heard that song. It was songs that were huge hits were everywhere. That's not the case anymore. So hits don't mean what they used to. Like there have been people who come to me and was like, yo, you don't know who this dude is? He has like five hits. And they just list them, run them off to me. And I'm somebody who's been in music and listens to music all the time. I used to have headphones on all the time. I keep my ear to the streets as far as um, music is concerned and new artists. And I've never heard of this person or their contemporaries or the people in their camp. Or the other people that are streamed alongside them. Because I don't use streaming services. So, you know, a hit is just a different animal than it was back in the day versus now. And we just have to accept that for what it is. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time deriding a lot of artists because I don't know who they are and I don't listen to them. I like to be informed about things if I'm going to talk about them. 
And I'm not going to sit up and just talk about a bunch of artists when the fact of the matter is I can't differentiate them if you were to put pictures of them in front of me. If you were to play their music, I wouldn't know who was who. So why am I going to waste my time talking shit about people when I don't know who they are or what they stand for? Or I'm pretty sure they don't stand for much. But that's the point I'm making. I And people say, you need to stop talking shit about stuff and just focus on what you like. I do. All the time. Maybe just not paying attention. I mean, if you don't take the time to actually read my entire timeline or, or go back and research who I am before coming at me for anything, then, I mean, that's on you. I do research. That's my life. I like context. I like to know what I'm talking about. If I don't, I shut up. Okay. So, um, what's my problem with the term hip-hop purist? Uh, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, a hip-hop purist is pretty much a misnomer. I think I've explained this on Twitter before, but I don't know how many of you motherfuckers read Twitter. I actually read it. And that's another thing, um... What I am do, what I do, I I feel like a lot of the times is I was asked to write for non-readers. I read. I'm a reading motherfucker. I feel like it's hard to be a writer who doesn't read. I read everything. I would read stuff by people I didn't even like or agree with because a lot of times it was their passion for the subject that they write about that I didn't agree with. That I that resonated with me as opposed to the actual subject. Uh, there are a lot of writers that wrote about music I thought was absolutely terrible, but their passion for it and the way they defended it and the way they felt about it made me read them. You know, and I I I that'll always resonate with me, regardless of if I think the music is good or not. There are a lot of young people that talk about their music and the art they make and they get really disappointed that the older folks don't really rock with it because it's not our taste and it's not made for us but I understand because I'm I was your I was their age too and I remember playing my brother DOS effects and my brother's only six years older than me and he laughed at it and he thought it was ridiculous and I was really disappointed by that so I can imagine how it feels to be a young person in rap and snow science say hip-hop different thing a young person in rap who gets told by elder statesmen that they're a disgrace to the art form and the culture when they just feel like there's another old person who's just shutting them down and not listening as opposed to creating that dialogue and um you know mending mending the rift but yeah uh with me i'm pretty much stuck you know, listening because I don't know and just trying to understand where they're coming from, even if I don't like the music, because I'm not going to pretend to like it or co-sign something just because somebody it's hot. I don't care. But the term hip hop purist doesn't make sense to me because basically what it is, is people that have clung to an aesthetic that only existed between. I'd say 1986 to 1989 or moreover 1986 to 1996 and it evolved over that stretch of time and that's how they want the music they hear now to sound or that's what they want it to follow. And if it deviates from that or their idea of what that is in any way, shape or form, then all of a sudden it's trash. Um... I don't 100% agree with that. 
because rap and hip hop culture haven't been pure since uh, 1979 when the rap industry was created. And people will say that 1979, there was a small group of labels and blah, blah, blah. So there wasn't an industry. Yes, there was an industry. If there were labels putting out music and there was a way to get paid for rap emerging, there was an industry. If Russell Simmons had created Rush Artists Management, there was an industry. If there were promoters putting on shows, there was a rap industry. If there were flyers being posted and it said, this recording artist from this label will be here. And you could go to Cashbox, or you could go to Billboard, or you could go to any black music charts and see rap singles listed. There's an industry. I don't care how big the industry was, it existed. But um, rap hasn't been pure since that time. Rap hasn't been pure since 1990 when the first rap single, you know, hit number one on Billboard. Rap hasn't been pure since the first rap album hit number one on the Billboard charts after the SoundScan era. None of this shit is pure. So trying to stick to something and apply what you think something is to something that might not necessarily even be accurate is a joke. And there are just a bunch of people who just want to... Uh, rationalize their own hatred of or preference of a sound or an aesthetic and hide behind the moniker hip-hop purist. No, you just like what you like. You just prefer what you prefer. There's more than one way to skin a cat. There was more than one way to make a record. Everybody didn't grow up in New York in the boroughs Everybody didn't have bodegas where they lived, you know? So if you made music in Houston, Texas, why are you held to the same standards and the same music and the same musical aesthetic as somebody who's from New York? If you're from Detroit or Flint, Michigan or Ann Arbor, Michigan, why does your music, you live in a different area, you have a different flavor to, to, to where you, you're from in the Midwest, you know, why do I expect your music to sound like somebody else's? across the country so i just don't i just never really bought um the hip-hop purist thing and i do remember you know when people were really resistant to what was coming out of compton and california between 1988 and 1990-91 because they kind of felt that it was usurping new york's place in the rap world when actually it was just making it bigger i was a huge fan of the, to, of the mcs coming out of california they influenced me just as much as the ones, you know, on the East Coast. And I really feel that one day in New York, especially in the early 90s, would actually turn around and say, yo, what was happening with The Good Life and Project Blowed and with all these MCs on the West Coast really pushed what happened in the era of um, the New York and Poets Cafe or the, um, the Lyricist Lounge Show or just the underground out of the wetlands and and SOBs and all these other venues like there was at The Good Life. Both of those things influenced me greatly going forward. But as much as I love underground rap and I was a backpacker between 1995, 1997, I mean, I've always been a fan of underground rap because it was a part, it was like a farm system of, you know, mainstream rap. So I don't feel that changed. 
And at the same time, I was listening to underground rap in 1996, 1997, 1998, on vinyl. I was still listening to music from other regions that didn't follow that same aesthetic. You know, I had no problem listening to the um the tear the club up thugs, and in the same breath, turn around and listen to Sir Menelik, Cyclops Four Thousand, Scaramanga Shala. It was nothing to listen to uh. Uh, kill army and then turn around and listen to like psychodrama I like rap I love hip hop I didn't when I was growing up I didn't separate the music I loved because oh this is Queen Latifah and MC Light so let me take her tapes and separate her from uh, or let me take Kwame and Kid and Play and separate them from um, Poor Righteous Teachers. Poor Righteous Teachers is beefing with um, BDP, so let me separate their tapes. I can't listen to A Tribe Called Quest and Rex and Effect. I can't listen to uh, Naughty by Nature and YZ. Yes, I can. I can't listen to Ice Cube and N.W.A. You see, you see how stupid that sounds? So when you fast forward years later and there were people talking about they were taking sides between Nas and Jay-Z. I was really confused because I remember growing up and listening to both LL Cool J and Cool Mo D at the same damn time. Every disc record, let's go to the break of dawn. You know, going back and forth. Uh, I... It just, it's just something that I just don't understand. But then again, I'm old. So I have a different perspective. Like uh, when I look at things that happen with like when Complex let their young writers go with the idea that Drake was going to be the first rapper to get nominated for a Grammy for a diss track. When LL Cool J actually was nominated for and won a Grammy for Mama Said Knock You Out, which was very definitely a diss track. I don't know what you were thinking if you heard it and thought it wasn't. You thought it wasn't aimed at anyone? Mama Said Knock You Out? You think? Considering that he was being dissed by, at one point, the entire rap world. He, he had been dissed by everybody from LL Cool J, Ice-T, um... KRS One. He got taken off of the hill, um, the Hill Yourself song for spitting a verse that didn't go with the song. When it first came out, it was on there, and then it got taken off. And not only did it get taken off when it got played on the radio, it got taken off of the video that aired on YoM TV Raps and BT's Rap City. And when uh, KRS One was asked why did he remove LL Cool J from the verse, I mean LL Cool J's verse from the song, he responded with. Because that song is only for the revolutionaries. Now, mind you, uh, who was on that song? Run DMC had a verse. And I mean, Jam Master J and DMC had a verse. Um, MC Light had a verse. Freddie Fox had a verse. I don't know. Big Daddy Kane had a verse. I don't know if all these people are revolutionaries. You know? Uh, Harmony sang the hook. I don't know if everybody on that song could be considered uh oh big that um Queen Latifah had a verse on there too. Um I don't know if everybody on that song could be really considered revolutionaries. 
So basically, he was just getting away from the fact that he just dissed LL just like everybody else did. And if you listen to songs like Murder Gram off that album, A Cheesy Rat Blues off of uh, Mama Said Knock You Out, it's LL getting at all his detractors and everybody who dissed him after um, uh, his Walking With A Panther album, which really fell short and disappointed a lot of people. But yeah, I think I just went off on a tangent as opposed to getting to the point, which is what I think a lot of people actually listen for, if they listen, whatever the fuck. Um, I'm going to talk about one last subject that I have on this list. This is going to have more of a point later. I'm just doing this to do it, you know, because I need to have one out. Fuck it. Get over it. And uh, what's the other thing I have on here? Oh. I have why no one can agree on what a rap classic is anymore. I actually wrote a whole piece about that since then. I don't need to use that one. Oh, here's a subject that I could really talk about. Why does music supervision suck so badly in Hollywood music and dance films? Okay. So this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Because it fucking pisses me off. Uh, So I was talking to a friend of mine years ago. Uh, Lean Rock. DJ Lean Rock. Um... Lean's, uh, Lino Delgado of the Floor Lords, his son. This man taught me how to b-boy back in 1982 and 83. Um, the Floor Lords are one of the oldest b-boy crews in existence. They uh, originated in Boston in the South End, Lower Roxbury area, around uh, Via Victoria housing in Boston, which is uh, predominantly uh, Puerto Rican. Um, but the point I'm making is I was talking to him because he actually makes music for b-boys he works closely with the red bull um bc1 and uh like the whole b-boy community you know he's part of the boogie brats and he's been a b-boy his entire life as far as being a dj and a producer he's worked with several people that i really respect um but we were talking about how we were disappointed with films especially dance movies with the music the musical selection and we were going back and forth about certain songs that just didn't fit in dance movies and how we were surprised that they didn't use songs from different genres that we actually listen to regularly and go to hear people spin. Like, why wouldn't you dance to the music the selection plays? You know, why won't you dance to remixes that like Catronada, the type of remixes that Catronada makes or Snake Hips, you know, like if you watch YouTube videos, that's what they dance to. When you watch the world to dance, they don't even translated what people do in world to dance to what you do in dance movies. Dance movies are often um, the step up variety and their music is seems to be more and more EDM leaning as opposed to hip hop or um Electronic, what people think is electronic music or just uh, beat culture music, I guess. Like, you listen to something like um, Jack High's Airspace. That's what people should be dancing to in these films, you know, more than anything, as opposed to, like, hackneyed Timberland remakes that sound really EDM heavy. Like, people really dancing to the wrong songs. In these fucking movies. So what I used to do is with my niece years ago, I would turn the sound down and I would play music from my laptop. And it would make the scene so much better. And then when I look at what people dance to on um 
these IG clips, minute-long IG clips of what they do on YouTube, it makes more sense to me. And why they don't incorporate that more into dance films boggles my mind. The last thing I want to talk about that pisses me the fuck off is um, I don't know how many people watch the movies where it's homegirl who does that who's with the acapella group and they sing all these fucking songs and the songs are actually super terrible i remember watching these joints and i was really worried because the main the main the protagonist she's supposed to be a dj and she's supposed to be a music lover but like the music that these people sing is the worst possible music you could choose you can you can select like the worst possible music you could think of and it's killing me that I don't know what the fuck the name of these movies are um but there's a point where the Barden Bellas they want to sing songs by women and they're singing the sign by Ace of Bass I'm like what the fuck is this of all the women the singer songwriters you can think of Carol King, um, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, just like a laundry list of women, you know, that wrote songs. That's who you choose, you know, Missy Misdemeanor Elliot. Damn, I mean, Diane Warren. There's just a laundry list of women who wrote songs. Carly Simon. And these are the songs that you choose to sing. And the thing is, a lot of the songs were contemporary and they were hits, but they were horrible. I got the magic in me. Singing songs by um, Flo Rida. I'm like, I understand that you want to get the audience involved and do things that they they, they would recognize. But there are a whole lot more songs. And and that's another thing that um, I was talking to Fonte about, talking about musicals. And he was talking about one of the biggest issues with musicals is that you have to license songs and you have to pay for them. And a lot of times those fees can affect what songs end up in music. I mean, end up in the music in a film based on the music supervision. And I just feel like that there are alternatives that don't cost that much. There are recent songs that came out that are well written, recognizable, that are way better, you know. And when you listen to these fucking songs that they're singing in these movies, it's like, yo, this is some of the worst music supervision I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. And why does this keep happening? And it's funny because I just feel like an old man who's just angry for no fucking reason. But I mean, I'm angry for a reason. It's, It's a good reason. And it's valid because I realize that, you know, I'm not the only person that feels this way more and more. But yeah, um, you have to understand that what I'm doing right now, where I'm talking directly into a device with no one else around, with I can't get any reaction from a person, I can't gauge their response, so I'm talking, I'm just talking into a fucking void right now. So this is a really weird thing to do. And it's also weird because I'm so self-aware that I'm realizing that I've gone on close to 50 minutes ranting about shit. And I have no idea what anybody's response to any of it's going to be until later. 
And that's also a weird feeling. And I think the worst thing is that I'm not one of those people that's going to really care about people's response. I'm just going to do whatever I want because that's kind of the person and the writer and the journalist I am. But that's also one of the problems with my career is because you kind of have to care about what people think when you do stuff. I just do shit and put it out there because I think it has to be done. And when you're on the other side of the content uh, thing, you you have to worry about what the response is. Are people going to respond to this? Am I going to be able to sell this? Who's going to want to sponsor this? I don't give a fuck about sponsors. I don't give a fuck about reach. It'd be nice. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do regardless. I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want to say regardless. If you don't like it, you don't like it. I'm good. So I wanted to get some of these subjects out the way. And trust me, it's a long ass list. But I feel like this is other stuff that I could address later and talk about more in depth later. And I want and when I actually get this out the way, I can actually, you know, better gauge how to approach this and exactly what I'm going to talk about and how. Like, there's no music leading into this. There's no fade out. It's going to be what it is. It's going to be me talking into the void. Then it's going to be over. And then I'm going to do the shit again. So whatever. Uh, I think I'm going to stop this at 50 minutes because I got shit to do. Let me be fair with you. Uh, so am I going to come up with a date that I post all this shit? No fucking idea. I will tell you this much. I think WCKR has a podcast called um, Lost Notes. And next Thursday, they're going to do a piece about new additions connection to basketball. Specifically, I am featured because I talk about new additions cool it now video. I mean, my secret video and how come new edition is on the West Coast working and playing in a game. Ralph Tresvant is in a game with the Lakers as opposed to doing it with the Boston Celtics. And the reaction that it got in Boston, why it happened, yada yada. So that's going to go up on Thursday on iTunes. So if you go to iTunes, look for uh, Lost Notes. I believe the podcast is called. And Thursday, I think the first two the first two episodes went up the first day. I think there was a third episode that went up. One episode is about the song Louie Louie. Another episode is about um Pirate Radio. And there's another there's another episode. I can't remember what it's about. But the Thursday episode is going to be the fourth episode, I believe. Because two episodes went the first Tuesday, the 12th. The next the next Thursday, um, the 19th, another episode went up. And next Thursday is going to be the episode that I'm talking about. So if you go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Lost Notes, I believe it's called, then you'll find it. But anyway, um... That's it. This has been Dart Against Humanity. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do, however the fuck I want to do it. And that's how I came up with the name of the podcast. The logo is just fucking a black back with fucking Helvetica font saying Dart Against Humanity. Simple. Basic. Just like me. Blunt. Straight to the fucking point. Whatever, motherfucker. Uh, Ain't no sign off. Eat a dick.